and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. Each year, the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Arts, or MESDA, publishes a journal of new scholarly articles. Uh, this year's issue is unusual in having a guest editor, Dr. Torin Gatson, who teaches public history at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. In his introduction to the MESDA journal, Torin writes that African-American craftsmanship has been broadly overlooked in decorative arts circles, and that this installment of the journal is an overdue effort to start correcting that problem. He writes, quote, The true power in an object is its ability to tell a story and on occasion capture the voice of an otherwise historically invisible person. Well, that is a drum that I love beating, and I'm very happy to be joined today by Dr. Torin Gatson. Torin's research has included work on the history of housing policy and discrimination, uh, the NAACP, as well as material culture. And he's also worked with Dr. Tiffany Momin, um, who you remember from this program two months ago, um, on the Black Crafts People Digital Archive. But today, Torin is going to talk with us about an object that sits at the intersection of craft and economics, industrialization and slavery. Um, this is an artifact of North Carolina history that reveals some really surprising features of the rural Southern economy uh, before and after the Civil War. Um, Torin, thanks so much for being with me. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the object itself. Um, what are we talking about today? So we're talking about a fire bag from the Vesuvius Furnace, um, located in Lincoln County, North Carolina. Uh, and this object on it uh, is in bas-relief. So it's embossed with the name Joseph or J. Graham, um, who is significant of the revolutionary hero, the later governor of North Carolina, Joseph Graham. Uh, the object itself uh, sits at a height of just about 38 inches with a width of 36 inches has a depth of just about an inch um, and an overall uh, length of about 15 inches and a half. Um, and so this object is currently housed in the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Arts. It was a piece of a private collection and to the best of knowledge, it descended uh, in the Davidson family of Huntersonville, North Carolina, which is in uh, the northern section of Mecklenburg County, uh, where Charlotte resides. And, and what exactly is a fireback? What was it used for? A fireback was an iron object made of iron ore through that production, used uh, primarily in the back of chimneys, fireplaces to protect from the immense heat that fire, a uh, live fire often projects. Um, and it could be ornamental. Um, and so the decorative shape or, you know, the decorative art uh, if you will, that is craft on it uh, could produce, you know, it would be aesthetically pleasing, therefore. But it served a, a true purpose of, of protecting the inside of fireplaces. So how old is this fireback? It's dated between uh, 1802 to 1816. And so we believe somewhere between perhaps as early as the late 18th century, but definitely into the early 19th century. Okay. And you said it came from the Vesuvius Ironworks, and, and we're yes. going to be talking a lot about Vesuvius today. Um, but but tell me, give, give me a basic outline. What, what exactly was Vesuvius? So Vesuvius Furnace was constructed uh, circa 1795, um, and it's believed to be the idea of Peter Forney. Um, so in May of 1795, Forney sold one-third of his interest of Vesuvius Plantation um, and the land to Joseph Graham, Alexander Brevard, and John Davidson. And this trio 
kind of operated the land um, starting out. But from 1795, Vesuvius and nearby Mount Tirza Forge remained in either the Brevard or the Graham families um, until after the Civil War, actually. And so Joseph Graham, interestingly enough, married John Davidson, who was the third person I mentioned in this trifecta. He married John Davidson's daughter, Isabella. And Alexander Brevard, who was the second person I mentioned in that trifecta, married Davidson's uh, other daughter named Rebecca. Okay. And so, so they're keeping it all in the family. Exactly. And so in 1808, John Davidson sold his interest of Vesuvius Furnace. But this transition was critical because he laid it out in two separate deeds, giving each person, uh, Graham and Brevard, equal stock in the other's property, Mount Tirza and Vesuvius, thus interlocking these two families um, for a while. Um, and so, you know, Vesuvius sits in Lincoln County and this area is actually very special when we talk about um, the production of, you know, iron ore, because iron ore is the key element that makes firebacks um, and many iron products. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we look at that, what's critical in making this are four elements. So, you know, in the 19th century, the state of North Carolina, and particularly the Piedmont region of the state, is served as a vessel for iron ore production. Um, the primary reason for this production of iron ore flourished, or the reasoning for its flourishing um, in the Piedmont, was due to the abundance of the five necessary natural elements to produce um, iron. And, <clears throat> of course, the most important is iron ore, um, and, you know, that will be mined. Uh, but the other critical elements were um, fast-flowing waterways, rivers, fast streams, limestone, um, crystallized stone, and then hardwood. And so this comprised the other necessary resources. And, and you know, just in brief, the limestone was an, an important fluxing agent, um, while the fast-moving water powered the turbines and the water wheels, which actually produced, made the production run. Um, and the hardwood produced charcoal, which was an essential agent in the continual operation of the furnace for up to six months at a time. And the large crystallized stone supported the structural integrity of the furnace stack that housed the iron ore. Um, so all of this is happening at Vesuvius. And, you know, Vesuvius is a, is a massive operation with about at any point in time, it's believed uh, that this property spans you know, 87,000 acres. Wow. Um, and that was according to records from the census by 1850. Um, and that's a combination of real estate, personal estate, the property combined. Um, and it would have been over 30 enslaved individuals as well as 13 slave dwellings sprawled across the plantation um, with also an abundance of um, some free people, uh, as in white, white women working cotton gins and other things, as well as hired out uh, either slave labor or free african-american labor so it's really almost a, an independent community a uh, large number of people uh, working out there in lincoln county so it really is um and you know with that i will say that you know as we begin to unpack and truly see we see that vesuvius was far from isolation as one of the lone industrial manufacturers in the piedmont and so during the late 18th and 19th centuries um, there are a few depictions we have. One map shows uh, that, you know, in this part of the in this part of North Carolina, there are an abundance of tobacco factories, textile mills, 
coal mines, blast furnaces, and paper mills. Um, and so Vesuvius is, 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 is represented within that mix. Um, but what you need, uh, the core element of what you need is an iron production or what some call an iron vein running through running through the ground. Um, and so in this area, kind of where Lincoln County said was a prime example. So there were approximately 10 other furnaces uh, and mills in that area. Um, and we do have some surviving maps that Lincoln County Historical Society has that show these blast furnaces in order, kind of going uh, uh, vertically at a diagonal, going down in a straight line. And you can almost follow where that iron line would have been, where people are taking um, taking this uh, natural resources and precious natural resource from. Yeah. Well, let's let's um, step back for a minute because uh, we're talking about something interesting here um, in terms of uh, slavery in an industrial context rather than an agricultural context. And and normally, you know, the, the sort of stereotypical image of Southern slavery uh, before before the Civil War is, you know, the the, the cotton plantation um, and you know slaves out in the fields. Um, but this is something very different and it's a picture that's maybe not, not quite so familiar to us. Um, so, so talk a little bit about, um, this idea of, uh, industrial slavery in the South. Was that, um, very common or was it really, um, uh, you know, confined to this area of North Carolina? So it's not necessarily confined to this type of North Carolina per se, um, and it's actually very reticent throughout the South, but it really speaks to those more deeper laced conversations that have been, you know, to some degree overshadowed or left in the margins. And that is when we talk about the skilled craftsmanship of African-Americans. And with that, we also talk about the... Uh, skilled craftsman who's producing these objects in an industrial situation. So by the time of the cotton gins production with cotton gins, cotton mills, um, hired out slaves who are producing tin, uh, silver, blacksmiths, you know, so a lot of these situations produce um, more complex narratives when we talk about what enslaved persons are doing, what plantations are producing, or what plantations want as far as an idea of industrial um, enslavement. Now, when we talk about iron furnace plantations specifically, we do talk about a more laborious and definitely a more dangerous operation. Um, but I can, you know, speak to that a little later. Yeah. Well, so, um, you know, you've made the point, uh, in our, in our previous conversations about, um, this concept, uh, or stereotype of, uh, slave labor as, being really devoted to um, hard physical work, and and how that's maybe not uh, an entirely accurate depiction of what enslaved people in the South were were doing. And you know, on, on this program in the past, um, I've had uh, conversations about, for example, Dave the Potter, um, you know, is a, a skilled South Carolina craftsman who you know really possessed a very sophisticated understanding of the art of pottery, um, who was able to develop a, you know, a skill which was actually quite valuable in the marketplace. But there are, there are of course, many other examples. And um, I'm interested to hear about Vesuvius and what kind of um, skills and, and labor were involved in that operation. 
So that's actually a question. And as we unpack that, I think first, you know, a proper introduction, I guess, briefly, if, if, if there's such a thing of how a blast furnace operated would help and then talk about what key pieces you would need, kind of answering that question um, in full circle. So with a blast furnace, you are essentially lighting this big stack and it's going to operate for as long as you can continually keep it in motion. So once a furnace was blasted, and that would be the part of beginning, it could not stop. So that is one key element is that it is being manned and operated while in production 24 hours a day, nonstop. So that in itself talks about the serious laborious nature of there are individuals on shifts who have to maintain the status quo of this, right? So once a furnace was in blast, and that is the start of operation, the core elements that we previously spoke about were systematically combined to create iron, right? So first, limestone was melted using the charcoal in a process commonly referred to as the batch processing. So this involves pouring a mixture of limestone, charcoal, and iron ore into the top of the furnace. While this process is done, it's continually fanned to increase and maintain the temperature of the blast. So once the molten iron was detached from the furnace, it was treated in two principal ways. First, it involved creating various shapes or styles and patterns um, to cast molten ore. This process created firebacks, ovens, and stove plates iron bowls, pots, and, and other, you know, various items. And the second treatment was to pour the remaining iron into long, narrow trenches, commonly referred to as trowels. So this created what becomes known as pig iron. And pig iron were thick bars of iron that could be reheated at a later time and hammered into various shapes. So from the industrial standpoint, a lot of big companies, railways, they want pig iron. But also in a more um, subtle or intimate fashion, and especially with the decorative nature, you know, individuals want to purchase firebacks that have been uh, skillfully blasted and craft mm. into certain imagery as well as stove plates and other things. So when I just talked about that entire process of the blast furnace, every role was it was necessary for a different person with a different position to help situate each role. So there is a person that is lighting the furnace which is a dangerous job in itself uh, because if anything goes wrong, obviously there's the potential for fire. There is yeah. the person who is fanning that has to keep that, that bellow moving to continue the flame at a certain point. You have the individuals who are watching or maintaining the water wheel. And most importantly, you're watching the people who are dealing with laying or pouring that iron ore into those casts. Now, this would all be in a, a, a what we might think of as a tight fixture, but pretty much the size of a house. Um, and mm. inside of it would be where the blast furnace and other objects were. The running stream would come from without in. Any, nothing else, though, could enter that structure because if air or anything got in or out, in some cases, the, the, the blast itself, the entire operation could blow up. And so well. you're working with a high pressured, um, intense scenario. And but that's not all. And I think your question was spot on in the sense that we really see the dynamics of the institution of enslavement and just how multifaceted plantations could be when we truly look at all the pieces to the puzzle, because the, all of those individuals are working directly in the blast furnace. But in order to get to that process where we're ready to even blast, you've got a number of other people. And even after the process is over. So, of course, you have woodcutters who are. Obviously, when I mentioned 89,000 acres, um, a large 
propensity of that is going to be woodcutters who perhaps form their own communities living off in the woods and simply cutting wood, hauling it back. Then you have your basic laborers, you have um, molders, you have miners who are going to get the rock, you have teamsters who are hauling the finished product to and from the area, um, all the way up to iron masters, founders, and clerks who run this operation. So there are anywhere from 10 to 15 roles and positions, uh, many of which would have been held uh, by, you know, African-Americans um, and, and enslaved people at that. Yeah, I mean, that's remarkable to, to think of the wide range of, of pretty sophisticated skills uh, that were required. And yet, you know, um, mastering those skills didn't necessarily come with um, tangible rewards. Um, in other words, Absolutely. the conditions, you know, not not only uh, were these laborers enslaved, mm-hmm. but they were enslaved under conditions that um, were really extraordinary, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, these harsh conditions and the dirt, the smell, the soot, um, it, it really... You know, industrial plantations thrived off of a city mentality, right? Slaves were housed in large numbers, and whether hired or belonging to the plantations, this large influx of slaves it created a, a kind of a different dichotomy of, of enslavement. Um, and so, while the institution or the intentions of this bondage rather um, were undoubtedly for labor, it also simultaneously spawned culture in some instances. Now, there were um, white and free people, as you mentioned, uh, working at Vesuvius as well. Um, you talked about um, women uh, working with cotton, um, but were there other roles? Uh, I mean, supervisory roles, for example, and w- what kind of relationship uh, existed between the enslaved workforce and and the white workforce? So, um, it's, and it's another good factor. So it's also interesting that, you know, these blast furnaces in the South, you know, the roles of African-American women are unclear. Moreover, their physical duties are also uncertain. Um, This uncertainty, you know, is also seen through the landscape of Vesuvius. Um, The mention of young white women to work cotton mills is intriguing because it speaks um, to an eclipse section of American history. Right. Historically, um, you know, scholars like Jacqueline Jones and others, um, there were, in fact, a small group of slave masters that despite owning slaves, preferred to use white men and women and substitute for certain ports of enslaved labor. Um, but this substitution was done either to protect their economic investment, which would be the enslaved people, or because owners needed slave labor or skill elsewhere. And so this this kind of fits perfectly into this idea that at a uh, a iron ore plantation or furnace plantation style system, you are going to want your enslaved labor and especially your skilled enslaved labor to be doing one, the most dangerous job, but two, the most profitable where you could exploit that um, in high and high mm. numbers. Um, and so at Vesuvius, we know that they had other operations like a cotton mill, like a sawmill, uh, you know, so they're they're and to certain degrees growing some small crops, um, not necessarily perhaps for trade, but more so for um, facilitation of daily life. Mm. But nonetheless, those roles were perhaps formed by, you know, white women, as we talked about with the cotton gins, but also perhaps African-American women um, in, 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 in that light. Yeah, it's really interesting. So the, there was perhaps a, a pretty complicated network of roles and responsibilities. 
Yeah, and, you know, and to your point about, you know, where these other white individuals were, you know, clearly at the top of, um, there's a, an excellent chart, and, and I'll be sure to send it to you, it's an excellent chart that kind of lays out what the pyramid, it's actually a pyramid, it shows the hierarchy of what people would have done at the at the mm. plantation, and you see at the very top, there's a role called the Iron Master. You know, while African Americans probably are giving critical elements of skill, risking their lives, really showing off their, their decorative artistry, they're not probably going to ever attain the role of Iron Master because that person's in charge, so to speak. And when you're thinking about a system of domination, you're wanting those individuals to be overseen by white people, right? Underneath the Iron Master, you have clerk and the founder. Um, underneath of them, you have keepers, fillers, molders, guttermen. Um, and then at the very bottom, we get back to this point of, you know, there are individuals who have to do the very basics, and that is supply and demand. Grab our resources, take our resources, transport our resources. So you see the laborers, the miners, the teamsters, the woodcutters. And so from top to bottom, it's easy to see where enslaved people and African Americans definitely would have fit in. Um, but, you know, make no mistake about it, in this system, uh, within the institution of slavery, you're definitely going to have white overseers um, even if it's not in your traditional sense of standing and watching in the field, um, at the helm of an operation as large as this, you're probably going to see white white leadership. We'll be back with Torin Gatson in just a moment. First, I'd like to remind you that, as always, you can find images of the fireback and other items from today's episode at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast or on my Instagram at Objective Interest. And if you'd like to support the program, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and a review. As you know, Curious Objects is brought to you by The Magazine Antiques, the publication of record in the world of fine and decorative arts for coming up on 100 years. If you're stuck at home, like so many of us, Antiques has rolled out a series of digital programs to help you cope. Head to themagazineantiques.com, where they're always uploading news stories as well as some really fantastic archival pieces. Their latest article takes you on a stroll through the Stockholm estate of the Swedish modernist sculptor Carl Mulis, which is laid out as a beautiful, leafy staging ground for his Greek mythology-inspired sculptures. And on Antique's social media channels, you'll find the Antique of the Day, selected by editor-at-large Glenn Adamson, uh, whom you may remember as my guest from June of 2019, as well as uh, my favorite Instagram game, Name That, which is a quiz posted every Tuesday that tests your knowledge of art and pop culture. If you're trying to cut back on screen time, you might sign up for Distilled. That's a monthly roundup of Antique's best articles. Uh, or the magazine's newsletter, Wandering Eye, which every week brings you a selection of topical antiques-focused articles from across the web. Or, best of all, you could subscribe and get the upcoming September-October issue of the magazine Antiques in your mailbox. So how would the working conditions um, for an African-American uh, working under, um, under these overseers at Vesuvius uh, how would the conditions that that person was subjected to compare to the conditions of someone, for example, working on a an agricultural plantation? Depending on what kind of agricultural plantation we're talking about is really critical there. Um, if we're thinking about a rice plantation, something that has to be set, tended to, but it's seasonal, um, it's going to be uh, <laughs> the equivalent of, you know, 
while I, sh I wouldn't use equivalency there, but this idea of a blast furnace is going to be, you know, likened to hell. And we have records that show where masters at other plantations are threatening their enslaved individuals saying, if you don't act right, if you don't do what you're told, I'm going to send you to the iron plantation wow. um, because it was thought of to be that dangerous. And the work was was heavy. It was laborious. It was taxing on the body. Now, when we think about other types of agricultural production within the institution of enslavement, we do see glimpses of similarities. Um, Sugarcane plantations, because of the life expectancy being so short and the immense amount of work in the Caribbean, I think that could be likened to um, iron plantations uh, throughout, you know, North America. Um, but as far as, you know, this more what some might say, you know, quote unquote, this traditional narrative of plantations and agricultural production, it's not you know, going to be as physically taxing and tolling. You know, just as we mentioned, if we go back to my earlier statement when we talked about or when I talked about what it takes for um, to get a furnace in blast. And once it's in blast, just the piece about it having to remain that way for 24 hours for as long as you can have it. That means that, you know, in a normal setting, obviously, outside of a wretched system like enslavement, you may have individuals working an eight or nine hour shift. Well, during enslavement, you know, who's to say it could be 16, 17, 18 hours yeah. straight before the next person comes in to do the same thing. Um, and that is physically tolling or taxing um, on any person. Do you know anything about, um, you know, the, the rate of injuries or health problems or premature deaths, life expectancy, um, anything sort of statistical about um, the welfare of those enslaved workers? You know, in sharp numbers, I do not as directly relates to Vesuvius, but we do know from other accounts that, yes, uh, accidents happened quite frequently. Um, lives were lost often because of the volatile situation of producing ore, not just the physical and taxing toll, but the fact that if water or if water enters the stack in the wrong place, exits the stack, too much oxygen, not enough oxygen, you have a catastrophic, in some cases, explosion. So when you have mostly enslaved individuals working inside of these stack houses and maintaining the flow of these furnaces, if anything should go wrong, you know, it's, it generally uh, ends in death. Yeah. Now, there were, of course, there were um, iron furnaces uh, in free states as well during this period. Um, how how do you think the conditions would have compared between a place like Vesuvius versus, um, you know, maybe an operation in uh, Pennsylvania or um, New Hampshire or something like that? You know, one of the things I would say is that, you know, when you're using enslaved labor, you know, there's not too much that changes on that landscape that way. But to look at it from another scope, the vast amount of land and resources, you know, once again, Vesuvius is operating off of a control of about 89,000 acres. Yeah. That is, you know, that's a tremendous number for 2020, yeah. <laughs> let alone a tremendous number um, for the turn of the 19th century. So I think having that raw, you know, that large scale of resources um, definitely changes the landscape and, and the vignette of the plantations. Um, nonetheless, once you get into the, the making of ore, the processes are fairly consistent. 
So do we know anything about um, any specific individuals who were enslaved at Vesuvius? Do you have um, resources or documents that can help you put together any kind of um, coherent biography around individuals? So we have a number of names and we have roles. And so when we look through that, that lens of the record, we're able to piece together certain stories. We don't have any conclusive narratives as of yet. But for instance, you know, there's a record uh, for Monday, the 22nd of 1856, that kind of lists uh, Brevard as paying a person named Henry Link, um, who was a well-established plantation owner in Lincoln County, for the services of two of his slaves. And we have, you know, the record books that show their individual work for four months at the rate of $10 per month, and each paid to him $50. So whether these slaves have retained their earnings of labor remains uncertain. Yet from the account ledger and the newspaper records as far, you know, it's evident that slaves working the property um, are contributing to the production of iron ore in the backcountry. So, you know, when you when you look at the hiring out process, you see that, wow, slaves are really controlling, um, controlling different different accounts. Right. So another account speaking of that because what we have is the account ledger of the 1850s from Vesuvius and that's what gives us a number of a large preponderance of this insight so another account lists several names that stand out as possible in uh, enslaved persons and we are you know making some supposition but it it, it is you know not to say it feels right but we're basing that on what their roles but also their names so including Hannibal um Ephraim, uh, and so, you know, and, and his name appears in the last will and testament of Ephraim Brevard, one of the individuals um, uh, attaining to ownership over the property. Um, and it lists 30 slaves um, and gave, you know, his brother Robert, Ephraim's brother Robert Brevard, um, that power over these enslaved persons um, upon his death. Uh, and so, you know, when we look at the account ledger, versus Ephraim Brevard's will, or when we align the two, now we start to see, and this is how through history, you know, we gain some of that evidence without the, without it popping out at your face. So I mentioned to you earlier, we have the account ledger of the 1850s, and we have some names that stand out, and we think, okay, these names may be of enslaved persons. Well, now when we look at Ephraim Brevard's will, upon him turning everything over to his brother, Robert Brevard, we start matching both documents to gather the names of enslaved, uh, you know, and they're revealed, offering a new avenue by which we can track their daily operations um, and perhaps, you know, and perhaps, you know, their jobs um, on the on the on the plantation. And so we see, you know, that Abram, Miles, Hannibal show up on the ledger with days and work and things that they are doing. But it doesn't necessarily give any credence to who they are, what their position is. But the will does. Mm. Will states these are enslaved Negroes, these individuals. So we know now, okay, when we see those names, depending on where they're situated, how they're situated, it gives us that yeah. clear. Um, another example would be, which really offers up just a, a whole other way to, to view it. Um, when we look at, I mentioned to you, the Teamsters, the individuals who are transporting the iron uh-huh. once finished. Um, there are records that that speak about um, those teamsters. So one good record that we have, um, pretty that, that exists, um, an organ a company called Boyden and Son out of uh, out of Salisbury, 
routinely would buy pig iron in large amounts, and one such record has them buying 15,000 pounds of pig iron. Um, But it lists um, Boy Rufus Shuford and his team um, to go out to the Charlotte Depot to transport uh, this, to to, to transport Mm. this. Now, what's interesting is, okay, we're looking at Boy Rufus Shuford. So that, that, that word boy is really triggering as in, okay, this could be a young boy, but more than likely it could be a, a grown man. Either way, that boy connotation is often most referred to an enslaved yeah. person. But then we see names that I spoke about earlier as, oh, Abram is also listed as one of the people along with Philip who are helping to, to transport on this team. And so now when we connect those dots, we see, okay, these seem, appear to be um, enslaved individuals. But now we think, wow, Lincoln County at that time where it was situated was far in distance from Charlotte. Um, it's at least a day's ride. So they are transporting 15,000 pounds from Vesuvius down to Charlotte Depot, no doubt to get on the railway mm. and be transported yeah. elsewhere. So when we look at that, you know, are they traveling alone? You know, within the hired out process, slaves are maneuvering, right, with 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 trace kind of um, remnants of autonomy within this situation already. So are these individuals traveling to from Vesuvius to Charlotte and back on their own, wow. you know, unattended to, if you will, hauling um, the lifeblood of the plantation, the economic stability of the plantation. Yeah, and I mean, I, I just can't imagine what would be entailed in moving 15,000 pounds of anything in the middle of the 19th century. That That seems like an incredible task. It is. It was. I mean, you know, we have some records that also show that they would have had to, to travel over or through some 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 difficult terrain, one of which being in the route they may have taken um, the Catawba River. And so we piece together through other parts uh, or through other stories, rather, you know, what that could have looked like. And so Juliana Connor, for instance, was a Charleston resident and was a guest of the Brevards on, on a couple of accounts. And she noted within her numerous accounts crossing the Catawba River while traveling from Charleston through Lincoln County and talked about how there were ton, you know, there were several instances where she did not believe that it was possible to cross. However, the horses appeared to, as she says, quote unquote, float as if they were floating ghosts in the, in the, huh. in the water. And so... Imagine now if we change the dynamic of the trip slightly and it's not Juliana Connor, but it's, you know, these Teamsters hauling 15,000 pounds across a river um, of a very fast moving flowing river at that really just shows the ingenuity and the engineering feat of these of these uh, skilled craftsmen as well. Yeah, I mean, their abilities and their expertise must have been incredibly valuable um, to the owners of the plantation. Absolutely. What? um you know, as as time went on and um, and we moved toward the Civil War, um, what was happening at, at Vesuvius in the the run up to the war and and during the war itself? Was it um, was it still operating? It definitely it operated uh, past the Civil War actually, and it's believed that you know production does turn up um, ramp up due to the war coming, and you know the Confederacy at that time or. Um, taxing or taking all resources necessary to operate um, their army. And so iron, making cannon, 
making balls, uh, bullets, if you will, and other things become of, of, of necessary interest, peak interest, right? And so in Richmond, you know, we have Tredegar Ironworks, which is producing a large number uh, in scale. But these other smaller furnaces are also able to help, especially on um, more or less, lesser known uh, theaters of war, right? And so in the Piedmont or in the backcountry, the inland south, we see that takes kind of a different shape. And so the hauling of that that uh, iron to places like South Carolina and, and other places kind of kind of speaks to that. And after the war, um, you say that, that the furnace continued operating, but obviously it would have been under dramatically different conditions. Uh, what, what would that have looked like? Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, after the war, you know, it's undoubtedly clear that you're losing a main staple of the operation. And if you were relying on chiefly enslaved labor, now there are either the conversations of hired out labor or the conversations of, you know, are we going to pay, um, you know, are we going to transition to another another workforce? And, and ultimately, it just doesn't seem to have been fruitful. Right. Um, with that, it does go to show you also must have a consistent abundance of all of the natural resources. And, you know, so trees, if you do not plant more than you cut, you know, that can run out. Iron ore can run out. And so all of these factors, but I definitely a large, you know, perhaps the most contributing factor is that, you know, the loss of enslaved labor um, with such a dangerous job would, would, would spell the end for the stack. Yeah, I would think that um, not only, of course, would you be looking at much higher expenses when you have to actually pay your workers, but um, but uh, given the conditions that you've described, it's hard to imagine how much you would have to pay someone to to get them to to work in a place like that. Yes. So, um, the, so the plantation sort of it, it's not really viable in the long term. Um, after the war and the end of slavery. Um, and so it winds down and and sort of enters the annals of history. But um, it's interesting how, you know, of course, in, in the early 20th century, um, the, the South experiences this wave of uh, romanticization, um, you know, the emergence of lost cause ideology. Um, we get Gone with the Wind and other depictions of um, of antebellum times as, you know, sort of beautiful and innocent. And, and yet those depictions seem really to focus around agricultural slavery and these sort of, uh, you know, grand, beautiful plantations. And um, what was happening at Vesuvius uh, doesn't fit into that narrative, really. Um, is that, you know, is, is industrial slavery basically just forgotten by, um, by these sort of lost cause fantasies? I think it's purposefully removed um, because it doesn't fit. You know, it doesn't fit into that narrative. It's, it's one thing to say that Oh, the genteel class, and when things were better, this beautiful winding road leading to this mansion with columns, with Corinthian columns, with Greek columns. You know, did those places exist? Yes. But was that, um, by and large, 
the <clears throat> the number of the day no and on top of that one reason why it doesn't fit is because when you get into places like Vesuvius you start having to examine um, enslavement a different way you, you have to start explaining or unpacking the the vast gray in the institution of slavery you know a lot of times it's positioned as a black or white thing no pun intended but it's actually very gray and so you've got to talk about the seeking out of skilled labor, the individuals who do not fit within the confines of this prescribed type of, ins- of, of enslavement where you cannot leave the property. You are here when actually in Vesuvius, you are being sent on purpose out to travel to another city and return on your own. Yeah. Right. Or we know Vesuvius had a general store where they were selling coffee and other things. And so giving these enslaved persons the opportunity to partake in even those opportunities while it's still seen from a position of dominance other enslaved persons at other plantations don't have that they don't even have that option so when we really look at what this is doing as i mentioned earlier it kind of carves out systematically over time this idea of 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 a culture um and adds to the skilled work of black people black craftspeople even if you will um because amongst all of this they're able to pull out some ideas of of identity and autonomy so let's bring it back to the fireback um where we started the conversation you know now that we know something about um really where it came from and the context that it came out of um what can you tell me about um the production of that that fire back, where it might have gone, where it might have been, and and how it came to to be at Mezda. Well, what we know is that, as I mentioned earlier, it descends in the Davidson family in Huntersville, North Carolina. Um, it does have a crack um, in the bottom of it, directly uh, in almost perfect center. Um, and you know, on either side, it has two. Um, fluted plaster columns um, and it's then has an arch uh, that has a decorative ornate figure and as I mentioned in the center you see Vesuvius furnace and you see what we uh, believe to be Jay Graham uh, placed in the center and so you know it has been sitting um, with Mezda for now you know well over 30 years um and it it really is a testament to um it's a testament and it's a vignette to a completely different story right looking at this object one would immediately perhaps like to talk about the Brevards and the Grahams and Vesuvius but in order to fully understand all of that you must talk about who produced it who made it where did it come from and so in the state of where the actual furnace was on Vesuvius, uh, that information is still unclear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do know it came from this place, right? Whether it actually sat in the big house, whether it was actually made for production, that is unclear. Um, but we do know is that it was there. We know that they made it. And, and then we know that it stands as a, as a, as a living testament to that enslaved skill labor. So what happened to Vesuvius in the end? What's... Um... You know, what, what do you see now if you go to that site? Well, 
And if you go now, you'll see um, the faint remnants of where a stack used to be. Um, you can see, if you know the landscape of furnaces, uh, blast furnaces, you can see where a shallow creek used to be perhaps a flowing water source and sand on the bank because you would need sand, kind of mud, wet sand um, flowing. But the property where the, where the big house was is actually now an event space, I believe, uh, it's very recent as a few years ago they were holding weddings and really? events it was an event space wow <laughs> yes um you know the home had been built out and added on so the historical integrity was not there but they were you know holding weddings and, and things as such which i think goes down a completely different rabbit hole if you will talking about the interesting aspect of these these places of you know personal and cultural strife and turmoil becoming um, the hot spot for people to have their nuptials. Yeah, that is really a striking contrast, isn't it? Um, I, I have yeah. to say, I'm not sure how comfortable I'd be uh, throwing a party there. <laughs> well, Torin, thank you so much. This is um, this has been a really enlightening conversation. Um, it's a, an aspect of the history of slavery that... Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad to learn about and and particularly to learn about the role of craftsmanship in this um, this southern industrial production. Um, it's it's quite fascinating. Thanks thanks for sharing that story. No, thank you for giving me an opportunity to spotlight this research. That's all for today. Thanks for joining us, and thank you to Torin Gatson for taking us on that tour. Just one bit of log rolling before I go. As I mentioned at the start, Torin, along with my recent guest Tiffany Moment, have created the Black Craftspeople Digital Archive, and they're now just days away from launching the first installment of the project at blackcraftspeople.org. This is a totally fascinating initiative, and if you're not already counting down the days to August 31st, well, what are you doing? Get on it. And join us again next month when I'll be talking with a curator and a dealer, to discuss some pieces that are going to be in a very exciting forthcoming publication from Yelp. Stay tuned. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm your host, Ben Miller. <laughs> <laughs>